We are here this Sunday morning to celebrate what we celebrate every Sunday, that Jesus is alive. Entitling this, A New Day is Here. It's interesting, the resurrection is not a peripheral thing for us as followers of Jesus. It's not even essential. It is at the core of our faith. It is the cornerstone of what we believe, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in bodily form. We're here today on a Sunday. A Sunday. Why are we here on a Sunday? I want us to think about that this morning as we look at this new day. My main point this morning is the resurrection of Jesus inaugurates a new era of human history for all time and for all people. The resurrection of Jesus inaugurates a new era of human history for all time and for all people. Now we look back in ancient history and what we do not find is a message about Jesus that if you follow him, he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. What we don't find is an ideology that if you follow Jesus and you follow these 12 rules of life, that you'll have your best life right now. It's not what we find. Not at the core of the message. We find it here in a creed. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is refuting people who have said there's no resurrection. And Paul is discussing what he received from the apostles in Jerusalem about 35 A.D., Some have said that the resurrection was a legend. The problem is legends take about 200 years to develop and to spread. But look what the Apostle Paul finds in 1 Corinthians 15, given to him two to five years after the resurrection. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. We see here within five years of the resurrection of Jesus, the belief that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead is already in the church. It's established. It's actually what makes the message. The sent one of God, the Christ, died for our sins and rose again. This is our creedal faith. But here's a question I have this morning. I was reading this passage this week, Luke 24. Go back and read the whole thing. After what Yolanda had read this morning, Jesus walks into the room and reveals himself to the 12. He has a piece of broiled fish. It's always a funny little caveat there. Got anything to eat? We got this broiled fish. He eats it in front of him. Fill my hands and my feet. He leads them out to the Mount of Olives and he ascends to heaven. This whole scene happens in 24 hours. 24 hours. Now we know that's not true because when you go to uh, Luke part two, if you know 
Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And in the verse 3 of the book of Acts, Luke says this by his own confession. Jesus was here on the earth after his resurrection, 40 days teaching on the kingdom of God, and then he went to be with the Lord. 40 days. So I'm coming back here to Luke, and I'm saying, God, why is Luke talking about one day that he came and rose from the dead and ascended? There's obviously a message here for us. There's a new day that Luke is trying to describe. And this is how he starts chapter 24 on the first day of the week. We know that Jesus was dead on a Friday, that the Sabbath was on Saturday, and that Sunday Jesus rose from the dead, the third day, as the Jewish calendar would consider. And so we see here that Luke is describing for us a day. He's alluding actually to creation itself. On the first day of the week, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The scriptures say this about the first day, about Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Arise and shine, your light has come. Those who are in darkness have seen a great light. The source of all light is the source of life. And Jesus is describing here, and Luke is describing in Luke 24, that there's a day marked at the resurrection that's a new day. It's a new creation. It marks something that's never happened before and literally changes the course of history. Imagine, today we live in 2023. 2023, since when? Since Jesus came and lived and died for us in the year of our Lord, A.D. Why? Because something happened on this day over 2,000 years ago. To bring home this point, and I know the scholars among you, I want to bring this home because this is not an esoteric faith. This is not we just believe. We believe because it happened. We believe because it's rooted with evidence in history. C.S. Lewis, a literary historian, said this about the Gospels. Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to happen. Apart from the bits of the Platonic dialogues, there's no conversations that I know of in ancient literature until about 100 years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. In the story of the woman taken in adultery, that's uh, John 4, I believe, we are told Christ bent down and scribbled in the dust with his finger. Nothing comes of this. No one ever has ever based any doctrine on this and the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is purely modern art. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that the thing really happened. The author put it in there because he saw it. What is the point? John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're not writing legends. They're writing what they saw and what they put down. Jesus really existed. 
Then let's come to the strangest story of all, the story of the resurrection. It is very necessary to get the story clear. I heard a man say, and I've heard it said today, in our midst, in this era, the importance of the resurrection is that it gives evidence of survival, evidence that the human personality survives death. On that view, what happened to Christ would be what had always happened to all men, the difference being that in Christ's case, we are privileged to see it happen. This is certainly not what the earliest Christian writers thought. Something perfectly new in the history of the universe had happened. Christ had defeated death. The door that had always been locked had for the first time ever been forced open. This is something quite distinct from mere ghost survival. I don't mean that they disbelieve in ghost survival. On the contrary, they believed in it so firmly on more than one occasion, Christ had to assure them that he was not a ghost. The point is that while believing in survival, they yet regarded the resurrection as something totally different and new. The resurrection narratives are not a picture of survival after death. They record, they record now how a totally new mode of being has arisen in the universe. What are we going to make of it? This is what they're saying. They always believed that the personality existed after death. But what Jesus did was he rose from the dead in bodily form. Something new was happening. A new day was here. Blake, you might say, don't these writers have an agenda? Aren't they trying to get their point across? Craig Blomberg put it this way, no one in ancient history ever wrote anything without an agenda. The only reason to write anything was to make a point. The modern view of journalism wasn't even existed then. And he makes this point, I think, it, to bring this home. Some will deny, usually from anti-Semitic reasons, the Holocaust. And so Jewish Historians and authors have compiled documents. They've written down eyewitness accounts. They've created museums. They've collected artifacts. Why? They have an agenda so that nothing like the Holocaust will ever happen again. It is not the agenda that makes them twist the facts. It is the agenda that makes them make sure that the facts are true. The gospel writers wrote the gospel so that we might know Christ is alive. Christ is alive in bodily form. Something happened this week. Put a picture up there for me. Donald Trump resisted arrest. Did y'all hear about this? <laughs> happened this week. Just kidding, it didn't really happen. See, AI, our great friend, Artificial intelligence generated an image of Trump resisting arrest, completely made up. It never happened. But in a moment, if you're how information travels right now, in a moment, it, we believed it. We, we knew it, right? We knew he would resist arrest. They would come after him. It never happened. And so as soon as the, the image goes out, everybody's up in an uproar. But then as the information comes out, they realize is completely fraudulent. There are fewer people today that believe that picture is real than there were when it first came out. See, time 
and evidence have a way of filtering out legends and misinformation. And one of the great reasons I believe this story is so powerful of the resurrection is that as the facts come out, it doesn't dwindle in its popularity, it rises. In AD 111, Pliny the Younger, a governor of Bithynia, writing to his friend Trajan, says this. 111 AD, 80 years after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. I have asked them, this is he's writing to Trajan, the emperor, if they are Christians. And if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of this admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and their unshakable obstinacy ought not to be unpunished. They also declare that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day. We know from history that day is Sunday. To chant verses alternately amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. And also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. This made me decide it was more necessary to extract the truth by torture from the two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. Eighty years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the Christian faith has traveled all throughout Turkey, all throughout Greece, all the way to the Roman Empire, from slave women to the nobility of the time, giving their lives for the truth that Jesus is alive. Come to Jesus. He'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and you'll lose your head. That's not the, that is not the message. Jesus is alive. Do you understand? We're not going to suppress a lie in this belief that we're going to uh, make this up. The first hundred folks that die, I'm out, right? We start lining them up. Oh, Maybe the first hundred was, you know, it was like a, it was a spoof, but we're still murdering Christians for what they believe, that Jesus is alive, that he is God. Okay, after that, I'm like, oh, we made this crap up. I'm out. No, but they stood in the face of death and said, kill me now. I will not deny Jesus is alive. I've seen him with my eyes. I've touched his hands. I've ate fish with him. He is alive. A new day is here. The resurrection of Jesus is the only reason that nascent, nascent Christianity took over the Roman Empire. Dr. Jeremiah Johnston in his book on the resurrection. Here's to me one of the most powerful evidences that Jesus rose from the dead. We even see it in the passage that these, this couple on the road to Emmaus waits for Saturday. It's Sabbath. It's holy. And they left on Sunday to go to Emmaus. Why did they wait, Why did they wait till Sunday? Because Saturday's a Sabbath. Even the followers of Jesus honored the Sabbath. We don't work on Sabbath. And they walked on Sunday. To this day, where 
those who follow the Torah in Jewish communities will stay at apartments and hotels where the, the elevator will stop on every floor up and every floor down on the Sabbath day because they cannot touch a button that would violate the Sabbath. It's holy to them. So then why would Jews who clearly are honoring the Sabbath right after the resurrection shift the Sabbath to a Sunday? Maybe because Jesus rose from the dead on that day. There's a shift. And the shift isn't just cultural. It isn't just because we wanted a new day. I mean, if y'all remember, this was the main reason they wanted to kill Jesus to begin with. He dishonored the Sabbath. So why would they shift it? Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And it's a picture for us. It's a picture of the gospel and the good news of Christ. And under the law and under written in creation, you work six days and you take the seventh day as a time of rest to enjoy what God's created and, to, and not work. Sabbath means cease. And this is a picture of the law. You work and then you earn a day of rest but not so in Christ, not so according to the gospel of Jesus that you put faith in Christ alone, that he died your death and rose again, proven he was the son of God. This is what the gospel says. You receive the gift of grace first. The first day of the week is the Sabbath. And then you work out of that rest. It's a subtle shift, but it's an eternal one. A new day is here. You don't work for the reward of heaven. You don't work for the reward of God. You get the reward of God up front. And then you work from that place of identity. He changes you. He makes you into a new person. He gives you a new name. He puts his spirit in you. You receive that by grace. And then from that place of grace, we work. It's a subtle shift. But there's a new day and it's here. A new day, a new era. Something changed in human history. Now, this new heaven and new earth are breaking in. If we remember even the prayer of Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This new era is here. Not only is this new day for all time, it's a new day for all people. I love this picture we get in, in Luke 24. Yolanda spoke that beautifully. On the first day before the sun rose, women. Women come to the tomb before dawn. This is what historians call the embarrassment factor. This is what, if you're going to make up a legend, you leave out. This is what you don't put down on paper because the culture would be offended by this. So why is it in there? Because it actually happened. Women come to the tomb first. Not just any women. Women by name. Oh, there was Mary Magdalene. There was Joanna. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. You can go talk to them. They were there. It's interesting how the authors write their names in. They're with us. You understand? I knew them. What does that signify to us today? We know that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. That she was a troubled young woman. We know that she was not in the mainstream of the cultural milieu. She was from the outside. She was 
from the outskirts, she was rejected. She was not looked well upon. Here Jesus is on the first day of the week making himself known to her. What about you this morning? Is your issue too big for God? Have you done too much sin for God to use you? Not so with Mary Magdalene. Written off as unimportant, dirty, shameful. A classless family. No delineation of rich, riches or wealth or power. There's Mary. But then there's Joanna. We know that Joanna was a wife of an official in Herod's home. Herod's castle, his, his ruling order. She was wealthy. And so I love this about Jesus. We, we want to vilify the poor. Or we want to vilify the rich. And Jesus says, no, I want them all at my tomb early in the morning. See, Jesus is calling a family not based on wealth, not based on ethnicity, not based on culture. We realize that when we propagate this gospel at the end of all of the Bible, at the end of the New Testament, the Bible says that there is a, a table filled with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. All peoples everywhere. We propagate Christ. We don't propagate culture. It's going to look a little different in every pocket of the world, but it's going to be Christ at the center, filled with the Spirit. Now, will Christ offend your culture? You better believe it. I was listening to, overhearing the other day, some people talking about some, some sin in a particular culture in Europe. And they were, well, that's their culture. Let me just help you. Jesus has something to say about culture. And what I know is true about the gospel, and I know that it is true, is that if you walk with Jesus into any culture all over the world, he's going to affirm some things, and he's going to confront some things. White Americans, he's going to affirm some things, and he's going to confront some things. My African-American brothers and sisters, he's going to affirm some things, and he's going to confront some things. Because he will not be bound in one culture. He will not let culture rise to moral equivalence. Christ alone. In every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Mary, Joanna, and I love this one. Mary, the mother of James. That's all we know. The mother of James. What did she do? She gave birth to James. That's all we know. Stay-at-home moms at the tomb. Moms who were working all day, coming home, still raising the kids at the tomb. Mary, the mother of James, just happened to be there. Just wanted you to know, moms, you have a place at the tomb with Jesus. What about you today? Do you feel outside of the power structures of society like Mary? Are you in the midst of the power structures with a voice put there by God for his purpose? Don't be ashamed of that. God wants to use you there. The second group of people we see 
in the afternoon, this particular new day of creation, is a couple going down to Emmaus. Y'all know what Emmaus means? Hot springs. We've had a tough week. <laughs> Our Savior died. Disciples are fighting. Our women have left us early in the morning. We're out of here, baby. We're going to Emmaus, the hot springs. Praise the Lord. And they left. I love this part of the story. Jesus rolls up on them. What you talking about, guys? See, eavesdropping is of the Lord. <laughs> Jesus is just like, hey, man, what you guys talking about? Hmm, you don't say. Tell me more. Just listening. All the while walking away from what they had been following Jesus for for the last three years. Have you ever walked away? Have you ever known right where you're supposed to be and early in the morning you walk away? I have. Grateful to Jesus to come after me. Grateful to Jesus to walk seven miles with me. To listen to my errant rumblings my theories about life, patient with me? Are you running from God this morning? Are you running for what he has for you to do? Have you walked away from the faith? Have you walked away, maybe not your proximity to religious activity, but in your heart of hearts? You've walked away. Have you allowed disappointment to drive you away from the place that God wants you to be? And to use you? A couple lessons we can learn from this couple walking away. They can't decide, is it Cleopas, which means the celebration of the Father, walking away from his purpose. He's about to celebrate the Father, but he left too early. We leave too early sometimes. And he walked away. Some think it's Cleopas and his wife. Others think maybe Luke is among them. They're not sure, but... No matter the case, two of them, they're walking away from their calling. They're walking away from the Lord, and God is after them. A couple lessons we want to learn from them this morning. Just because someone agrees with you doesn't mean you're going in the right direction. We can always find somebody to agree. Yeah, let's get out of here. Yeah, let's get out of here. Man, those people did us wrong. They messed us up. He was mean to me. Yeah, he was mean. Let's leave. Yeah. And so we leave. We walk away and we got company because two people can't be wrong together. <laughs> I'm sure that companion emboldened them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you see that? Me too. Just because you're emotional doesn't mean you're right. They had this conversation. They were sad. Jesus asked them. They stopped. Look down. Got a little sassy with Jesus. You don't know what happened? Right? You were there? I mean, who living in Jerusalem doesn't know what's going on? All right, they were emotional. It's funny. When we get emotional, we think we have the right to be right. Usually when I'm emotional, I'm wrong. I don't, is that just men? I don't know. I'm just like, yesterday, real emotional, real wrong. Facts. 
This is my, my public confession before you today. It's very emotional yesterday and very wrong. No comments from the front row, please. But we get emotional and we get justified. I'm disappointed. Something didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen. I'm sure, I am sure, just knowing kind of the interaction of the disciples, some things were said that probably offended some folks, right? Just because you have a reason doesn't mean you're right. Man, they had a good reason. Man, we were there. We put hope in this guy. He died. We're out. We have a good reason. We wrote it down. We deconstructed our faith. And we get someone to agree with us and we're real emotional about it. Well, you must be right. Only Jesus, this is what I love about Jesus, he walks with them the whole way. He rebukes them, pulls out the scriptures, starts telling what's going on. You're not too far gone for Jesus. You're not too far gone for Jesus. He'll sit with you in the muck and the mire and he'll eat with you. He's a good God who follows, who follows those who walk away to coerce them back. Seriously? I mean, if I'm the disciples, I'm like, see ya. We knew they were going to be gone anyway. Not Jesus following them. Asking them questions. Planting the gospel, right? Planting from Scripture. Did our hearts not burn within us? Still didn't turn around. Y'all notice that, right? Did our hearts not burn within us? Kept walking. Took Jesus breaking bread. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was like, he did it the same way. There was a Jesus kind of way of breaking bread. Y'all know it's like when leaders have a way of doing something and people stop mocking it when they're not around, like, <laughs> hey, hey, Peter, hand me that bread. Thanks, yeah. Who am I? Hey, y'all, 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 who am I, who am I? And everybody, oh, Jesus, he nailed it. He got that, he got that Jesus. Hey, hey, Peter, Peter, do that thing with that bread. They're excited about it, right? But, G, but he breaks the bread, right? And then they're like, Jesus! Why? Because sometimes the truth isn't so plain. We think the truth is just going to smack us. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's a conversation. Sometimes it's our hearts burning within us. And then he opens our eyes. And this is what's beautiful about the gospel. Jesus has to open your eyes. I can talk to him blue in the face. I can give you all the evidence. But if you want to continue in your disbelief, you can. You can. He'll give you evidences. But you have to follow them. And at the end of the day, this is what we know. They walk to Emmaus, they cajole Jesus. I love, like, look at Jesus. He's like, I'm going to keep going. Did you know if they don't invite him in, they miss it? You see that? Like, I just, like, just want to know why. Like, Jesus, what's going on, man? Why are you trying to fake people out? 
So they conjole him in. It's late, they say. He reveals himself. They're like, Jesus. And it says immediately get up and they go back to Jerusalem. So this journey that couldn't go any further, they started to know. Here's, here's what's amazing. When you see Jesus, you change directions. You change your plans. Well, I know Jesus. Well, have your plans changed? Has anything changed? Because when you see Jesus, you get up and you go back. There's a shift. There's repentance. There's an admission of guilt. I am guilty, Lord. This was evil. I'm turning around and I'm going back where you told me to go. That's repentance. And when we see Jesus, we do that. It's interesting. We don't repent to see Jesus. We see Jesus, then we repent. Did I cry enough? He's right there. Finally, we see Jesus show up among the 12, eating some fish. I feel kind of like the 12 a lot. I didn't leave Jesus. I surely didn't do anything, though. And that's some of us in this room. We didn't go to the tomb like the women, strong in their faith with their devotion to Jesus. But we didn't walk away either. We just kind of sat there. How many of us in this room have been through tough seasons where our faith is stagnant? Where we haven't run from God, but we haven't sought him either. We're in the room, but Jesus is coming. And I love that. Jesus will come into your stagnation, to your confusion. He'll come in. I remember being a confused Sophomore in college, Jesus stepping into my world. The resurrection of Jesus marks a new day for all people and for all time. The rep that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in every nation. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. couple things that we can pull away as we close this morning. Number one, how permeating this passage is the scriptures. If anyone didn't need to use the scriptures, it was Jesus. And what does he do? He opens the minds of the Old Testament, everything about himself. How that animal was slain for Adam and Eve so that they might be covered. Remember James talked about that a few weeks ago? That we could stop covering ourselves with temporary fig leaves and be covered by the blood of the lamb. That Isaac was a picture of Jesus, that he would go up the mountain with his father and he would be sacrificed. And at the last minute, a substitution would happen where the ram was slain and the son would come back alive. A picture of what Jesus would do for us. Esther would take her life and step into Xerxes' chamber, putting her life on the line for the good of her people. Jesus would do the same. And Jesus would march them through the scriptures of the Old Testament saying, it's been all about me from the beginning. 
It's always been about me. And their eyes were opened. And they saw he was the one who was to come. See, the, one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is that it had to be Jesus. You read Isaiah 54, 53, and tell me who else it could be. This guy, uh, this historian, took Isaiah 53, printed it out, didn't tell anybody. He just gave it to all of his unsaved colleagues. He said, just read this. Tell me what you think. They're like, isn't this Jesus written in the New Testament? No, 400 years before. He was bruised. He was crushed. He was pierced for our transgressions. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. It had to be Jesus. Would there be another flawless lamb? There would not. The scriptures were discussed. Here's my question. Do you know the scriptures? Do you read your Bible every day? Do you get a part of a community that discusses the scriptures so that you might know where you're goofy and where you need to realign? Amen? Because I get some real good revelation until I start opening my mouth about it. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And my friend's like, that ain't right. See, we need a communal faith where we bring the, the word out and we discuss it together. If you're doing theology by yourself, I'm pretty sure you're already wrong. We need theology in community. Do you know the scriptures? Do you discuss it together? Second thing we see here is that as soon the moment their eyes were opened, they went back to the community they left. It was, it was inconsequential. They didn't get a revelation of Jesus like, man, we're going to stay in hot springs, bro. We're going to stay. We don't need all these people to have church. We have our own. Jesus showed up to us right here by ourselves. We don't need the community of faith. We got our own personal hot spring Jesus. Right? I have my own personal hot spring, Jesus. No, immediately they went back to the community because they knew it was the community that Jesus was calling out, the ecclesia, the called out ones. It wasn't individuals. It was like, hey, you're wrong, go back. Be a part of a group, a community, a faith. If you aren't a part of a church, be a part of one. If you don't like us, that's fine. Lots of people don't. There are great churches out there. But... <laughs> Find somewhere, plug in, and start growing. Amen? Find a life group. Find a community. Grab lunch or coffee with some men and women of faith and grow together. If you aren't involved in a life group and want to be, they're on the app and the website. Look it up. Get plugged in. Finally, as we close... James, you can come forward. This phrase stands out. In verse 35, he said, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. What was the breaking of bread? It was communion. It was the Last Supper. It was this moment where Christ was breaking what he was broken. He was broken. And it's this moment of communion that we see Jesus. We're sure of this, and it has been true throughout human history and church history throughout two, 
thousand years now, the presence of Jesus is in our midst when we take communion. Why? Because when two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. And so this moment is a moment to have with Jesus. He's here. Amen? And so we're going to close our service this morning taking communion.